Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations on food and farming. I'm Jonathan Kilpatrick, soil health specialist at the Sustainable Farming Association. Today, we are going to have a roundtable conversation about preparing for and managing during a drought. I'm joined by my colleagues at SFA, Tyler Carlson, our civil pasture lead, Angie Walter, our dairy grazing apprenticeship and Minnesota Ag Water Quality Coordinator, Doug Voss, our grazing lead, and Derek Schmitz, our new Minnesota Dairy Initiative Coordinator. As of early June, most of Minnesota is considered abnormally dry or in a D0 status in the drought monitor. With the drought of 2021 still in the rearview mirror for farmers in the upper Midwest, we are going to discuss what we learned from that year, how and when to prepare for a drought, and managing livestock and pastures in dry times. Thanks for joining today, everyone, and taking time out of your busy schedules to, uh, especially in the spring season, to have this conversation. I think it's really, it's pertinent. And um, yeah, I'm just going to let everybody just go ahead and we'll start with Tyler and go to Angie, Doug, and then Derek. Uh, introduce yourself, your work for SFA, your farming operation and location, and um, we'll take it from there. So go ahead, Tyler. Yeah, hi everyone. I'm Tyler Carlson. I own and operate Early Boots Farm in Todd County near Sox Center, Minnesota. We're primarily grass-fed beef with some pastured lamb. Um, for SFA, I'm the sort of silvopasture and agroforestry project lead, where we're primarily working on a number of grants, um, looking at the application of silvopasture for oak, savanna, and oak woodland restoration as well as um, some some training uh, grants. So we're generating knowledge products and, and training, you know, SWCD, NRCS, um, conservation resource uh, folks. And um, yeah, I've been doing that for about four years and for SFA. And um, yeah, looking forward to sharing more about how we managed through the 2021 drought. Hi, I'm Angie Walter and my husband and I, we have a hundred cow organic dairy in West Central Minnesota. Uh, we market our milk to Organic Valley. Um, our cows are all crossbred. A little bit about what I do with SFA. I work with the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship Program and that um, helps train young farmers, old farmers, anybody who's interested in learning about dairy and getting into it um, in a hands-on apprenticeship program. And then I also work with SFA on the Minnesota Egg Water Quality Certification Program, just educating farmers um, about the benefits of the program and how to get certified. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Doug Voss. I'm the grazing lead at SFA. Uh, we have a family farm by Painesville, central Minnesota, historically a dairy farm, now converted to a custom grazing operation where we provide custom grazing services to for organic dairy replacement groups of cattle. We also have some satellite grazing projects on public lands. Uh, yeah, here in Painesville, raising our five boys, my wife and myself, and uh, we're all very active in the operation at the day-to-day -day and uh, enjoy what we do as we manage for not only good animal performance, but also ecological advancement with the resources that we're grazing. Hello, everyone. Derek Schmitz. I'm the SFA MDI coordinator. I farm with my wife, Taylor, and my two, soon to be three children near Cold Spring. Um, we milk about 60 cows, custom grains from cattle, and raise hair sheep. Great. So, uh, Tyler, I'm going to come back to you for a minute. I think uh, a couple weeks ago, um, you kind of sounded the alarm in a sense and said, hey, it's kind of dry. And about the same time you were saying that, I was on some farms digging around and 
some soil and realizing, man, for mid-May, we're pretty dry. And I started realizing like this could be a uh, interesting spring and summer. So what are some observations, Tyler, you've been seeing at your farm and, you know, kind of what are you seeing on the ground out in your place? Yeah, I mean, you know, early May, we were, we were, you know, that first week of May, we were only, we were only like a week from final snow melt. I mean, this winter went on forever. And um, so even just a month ago, I was not really concerned about drought. I was more thinking like, how am I going to manage through this mud season? I mean, if we get normal rain on top of all of that snow melt, um, we're going to have fun for a few weeks trying to get to spring grass, you know, still needing to feed hay and whatnot. Um, And the spring ended up being pretty dry. And by, you know, even just maybe the 15th or so of May, walking around things look green you know we got a little shot of rain in the first bit of may and things greened up nice and i thought oh boy things are really going to jump here so we're we better get going get organized to take cattle out to our rented pastures and you know take care of everything there with um animal prep um get the trailers ready um and then yeah walking around in a lot of the pastures though you know when you got into them looking down you could tell you know there is some some bare ground in areas that typically I don't have or areas where there's, you know, very short growth. Um, you know, the plants were probably half as tall as they normally would be, you know, by that stage of development. And some of the clumps like orchard grass or bunch grass clumps were thinner, you know, than they should be. So I started doing the math and I'm like, okay, well, it's half as tall and it's half as thick than it should be. So we're probably running 20 to 25% of dry matter that we we would normally have at this time of year and with the forecast looking hot and dry. Um, yeah, you know, setting things up in May and June is critical for like setting up the entire season on Mm -hmm. a pasture based operation. And, um, so yeah, I just started getting concerned because it felt very much like what I was seeing. It was like a little bit better than 21 was, um, probably mostly because the temperature, even though it's been hot, um, we haven't had like 95, I think I remember having like four or five 95 degree days in May, um, along with no moisture for a little bit longer period of time by the end of May. So, um, yeah, we're a little bit better off than we were starting 2021 here, but not a lot. So it's kind of like repeat right now. Things are just like, I probably have, you know, maybe 20% of typical dry matter instead of like 10%, which is a big deal because it's actually it's making it a little bit easier to make grazing decisions with the cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm able to kind of like top the seed heads while, while leaving something behind that can, you know, continue to grow and, and, and get a jump start if we get some rain. So yeah, between, besides that, you know, digging, we're planting a number of trees this year and working gardens and stuff. And yeah, you could tell like, boy, it's pretty dry you know, down about as far as you typically dig with a shovel, you know, 10, 12 inches or so. Um, right. So, and on our soils, it doesn't take much to dry out. We're on sand, not pure sand, but it's a little bit, you know, fairly well-drained sandy loam soils. Right. Yeah. It was kind of surprising to me just with the snowpack we had, you know, where I'm at, we had some record snowfall this past winter and everyone assumed we were going to have some really good infiltration and the ground was going to thaw quickly and we'd be in a good shape as far as moisture going into the spring, but, um, it's hasn't played out that way. So it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, Angie, what are you seeing at your place and what are you 
all contemplating decisions you're having to make um, as you address, you know, drier times and your feed resources and yeah, walk us through what you guys are seeing. So we have um, a little bit different soil than Tyler. We're a little bit more heavy uh, clay here. Um, and so we're not too dry yet, but um, we see the writing on the wall. I mean, if we don't get rain, we're we're about run through our first um, cycle of grazing with the animals and um, the regrowth just isn't coming very fast. So um, we know we're going to kind of have to slow them down a little bit um, and just hope that we can get some rain here. Um, maybe we're going to probably start planning to supplement a little bit, adding in some hay that we have, um, but we're hoping not to buy any. Um, another strategy we would have here coming up is um, start culling some of our animals that are on the lower end that we were on the list anyway, but now it might speed up the process just because um, we don't have enough to feed everybody. Um, and then, you know, we have some stuff um, planted, some stuff that we were planning to maybe take for grain, some rye and peas but if we stay too dry we might have to pivot on that and mm -hmm. take it for forage instead and so just kind of making those plans as we keep going but that's kind of where we're at right now okay it's nice that you do have some options though as far as going grain versus forage with some of your your crops that, so you can make a pivot so you have some some options to choose from so in a sense you've already been preparing for it maybe not intentionally, but it's always a back burner option for you, right? You can kind of make that pivot if you need Correct. to. Yeah. yeah. That's why we always, yeah, we, we always say we're adaptive grazers. So we're adapting right. with what the weather gives us and everything else. Mm -hmm. So. Right. Excellent. Derek, you're also a dairy farmer. So what are you seeing down, down in your area? So, yeah, we've been very, very dry as well. Um, we're lucky enough that most of the farm is irrigated. So that helps a lot, but it's never fun to start irrigating in May. Well, well, even though we are mostly irrigated, we still have to adjust some because irrigation isn't rain. It doesn't act the same. The floor just don't act the same. So what we're doing is um, grazing a little taller um, just to keep trying to keep things shade a little more. And uh, we're about to start making hay, and um, we'll be cutting that a little taller. Than, well, we're cutting it a little later, just trying hoping for a little bit more tonnage. And uh, cutting a little taller as well, keep the ground shaded and protect the moisture we do have. Um, so irrigating does get expensive. And um, we're also looking at culling some of the larger cows. Um, so we'll have to buy a little less hay. We, we always plan on buying some hay, but um, with the dry conditions, that could make things quite a bit more expensive. All right. Okay, so Doug... What's your situation looking like? I know we were talking a little bit earlier this morning. You've already made some pretty drastic decisions as far as this year goes. So walk us through the thinking behind that and you know, what you're seeing on the ground and the different places that you're grazing. Yeah. Um, on the home farm, I have to say we're, we're actually looking way better than we have in years just because of what we've learned from the last couple of years. Um, going into winter, we've left a lot more residual to provide cover because there's one thing with residual and dry conditions that last longer, right? So you need moisture to break down that that refusal behind the animals. And so if you don't have the moisture to do that, that's armor for the future. So 
we've made some pretty darn deliberate efforts to set ourselves up for the following year with the way we leave things in the fall. So the home farm is actually working real well. Um, we also had the opportunity to add another farm this last year. And we did that because we've had to send some animals home early last couple of years in drought. Um, pretty reasonable yet, I think, considering considering the conditions that we've had. But uh, we'd like to be able to provide, uh, you know, a full season service for those that we graze for. Because if, uh, you know, it's, it's a real costly situation for the farms if they have to go back because we can feed them much more efficiently on grass grazing than the operators can in a feedlot at home. And one of the reasons why the, the dairies that we graze for come to us is because they don't necessarily have all the resources to support the grazing requirement for the organic production on their own farms for their young stock. Uh, so I feel pretty good about that. And, you know, just recognizing the fact that you've got a couple different options when it comes to drought conditions, you either have to have more acres to feed those animals, or you have to reduce the numbers if you're looking at, you know, supporting the herds that you have. And like Angie was, you know, pointed out supplementation early on is a great way to, uh, to address that before you get yourself into a real pickle. So, uh, that's kind of the home farming operation. That's, I feel it's going pretty well. Um, we're right now grazing some river bottom ground that was all flooded the spring, um, because we did have the snow melt that we did. We had more snow than we've had last couple of years. And of course, none of the neighbors kept much of their moisture because of the clean tilled fields. It just really ran off and, so again, we have you know river bottom land that was all it was all pretty flooded. So that's our most productive ground on a drought year because uh, we can hold that moisture. We've got good biology working in those areas, and right now you know the heifers are grazing you know some reed canary flats that are just starting to shoot heads, and it's up to my shoulders. You know you you can't hardly see the backs of these thousand pound heifers. So that's pretty cool to think back to. Yeah, we had you know water there three, four feet deep. And now we're, now we're grazing just a, about a month, you know, later. So that's pretty cool. Uh, now where we don't have ultimate hundred percent control over the landscape, it's a very different story. So we graze some public lands and, uh, we had left those lands the same way last year with the residual. Um, we had some good stockpile, you know, going in over winter, but that was also an opportunity for a planned burn at uh you know sherbert national wildlife refuge is the one i'm i'm referring to and so it's been on the list for them to burn for a few years and they have to have the right conditions at the right time in order to get that performed so uh they had the fuel because we had the regrowth from last year uh to to fuel that burn but then of course they had no way of anticipating the conditions we have now and without cover uh, we have very little grass. So we just made the determination yesterday not to bring a large group of stockers to run with the uh, with the core group that we've got already there. And so our, our grazing numbers are going to be drastically reduced this year because of the conditions following the management that's been done there. So um, yeah, very different stories. Uh, and also Sandy situation at the refuge too. Uh, you know, it's, it's lower ground, but it's real sandy and the further you go south the sandier it gets so even where it wasn't burned there we just don't have you know the soil to hold the moisture even if they did have some moisture in, in april that type of thing the conditions without that cover and soil temps have gotten to the point where our cool seasons have shut down they haven't even uh they've given up on shooting a seed head even so that gives you an indication of the stress on those cool seasons and the warm seasons are coming on but again everything still needs some moisture so they're they're real slow to develop yeah so several of you have mentioned triggers to decision-making already. So drought triggers, and 
I'd like to walk through a little bit more drought planning and what are you wanting to see before you make a decision on a drought plan or implementing the drought plan or destocking or, you know, Angie mentioned taking a, a potential grain crop for forage. So, um, Doug, I'll just start with you and then anybody else just jump in. Um, yeah, let's just discuss drought triggers and what, what does it take for you to start implementing that drought plan or, um, you know, making those decisions. Yep. So the first thing I'll look at is, is how things are going that day that I'm looking at the grazing. So, uh, for example, how much residual I'm leaving behind the day, the herd on the daily moves that day, and then timing that out when I know I have to come back to that pasture based on my current trend. So my current pace, what it's going to look like knowing that if we don't have, you know, residual, and this is also site specific, right? So our farm isn't the same all the way across. It's not, it's not, uh, you know, uniform. I've got low areas, I've got high areas. So we have that, that advantage. Um, and so, yeah, where am I at the time based on the conditions that are presenting themselves and when am I looking to come back to that pasture? So knowing that drought conditions are going to take extra time if you don't have the moisture. And so that's where the forgiveness comes in with, with this type of adaptive management, right? So um, you're recognizing where you're at, where you're expecting to be in a given time in the future and whether or not you're going to have to make some adjustments. So in our case, in the custom grazing, all our clients are well aware that if we don't have the forage, we're not looking to degrade the resource for future production uh, with where we're currently at just to feed animals that day. So that means we plan ahead. If we have to destock to a certain degree at a given time to support you know, key animals, we identify the animals that have to go back and we'll send animals back home where we'll supplement, you know, in some situations we have done some hay feeding or supplementation as well. Um, so supplementation can be a tremendous value, right? If you're simply delaying when you're going to come back to a piece of ground that just needs that extra time for rest and recovery. Um, so that, that's really what that looks like for us, but we're also, we're always looking forward, right? There's always the, the given you have to feed the animals today, but you have to have a plan and, and have a response plan if you don't see, you know, favorable conditions. So if we don't see rain, yeah, there is the potential that in another, I would say what, uh, 60 days, potentially worst case scenario, we don't get any rain in 60 days. Yeah. We're going to have to have a plan to, you know, um, which ones to go home or we do have plans to bring on open heifers in July when some bulls are pulled from the herd and uh, maybe they don't all come maybe, you know, mm -hmm. depending on where we're at and the conditions that we have. So um, I always have a buffer in the system as well. So um, we hit low ground early when it's favorable like this, we can get on that ground without pugging it up because I know that ground has more moisture, you know, holding capacity already. It's going to be able to access, access that moisture lower. So if it has, a nipping early on in the spring, then I, I can expect better regrowth there than I could on some high ground. Um, and we haven't always been nimble to be able to do that in the past. And we've got caught a few times. I mean, we typically, some of the areas that we're grazing right now, we don't access until July, August when, if we have whatever we call a typical year, when we get drier later, but we have higher rainfalls in the spring, that's our typical routine. You know, we, we go on the high ground that worms up early in the spring. We have quick growth if the moisture's there. And then we go to these pieces of ground that were too wet earlier. But, you know, this is one of those years it's not too wet early. So we're grazing the low ground now, but we're grazing it appropriately too. So we can come back to it. So we're not grazing it too hard to require too long of a rest and recovery period where we're actually suppressing it further by, you know, 
by offering that disturbance and grazing it down too far so those plants don't have enough solar panels to try to restore themselves adequately. So that's kind of the, our approach, but we always have a plan. We always know which animals are going to go first if we need to send somebody off the farm. Great. So your your approach is is very heavily the observation method. You're You're out there in your pastures, boots in the ground, looking down, just making observations of the animals and the the resource and adjusting accordingly. You're not necessarily maintaining a grazing chart or or are you doing that in conjunction with your observation? That's a good question. So I haven't. Um, you know, it's interesting. I started out grazing by simply looking at what was happening at the time and planning out accordingly, like I described. I, I've done some grazing charts, but I don't build them with the idea that that's what my roadmap is going to be for the year. Uh, mm-hmm. We've done it a couple times just as kind of an, a, an, a way of everybody that's helping manage the pastures understands what the objectives are and how to achieve them. Mm-hmm. But we've never held a rigid plan with a chart in the past. Um, it's always looking at what's going on at the time and what we expect to have to happen, you know, for our management to reach our goals in the future. So, and that even goes as far as calculating uh, dry matter intake and that type of thing on animals. You know, we project around that 3% dry matter intake based on 3% of the body weight of the animals mm-hmm. that we have out there. But that that even varies too. I mean, from the first week that you take a herd off of store feed and put it on, put them on pasture, they behave differently than they do after they've been able to balance themselves with, uh, you know, diversity of different plant species. So, um, yeah, there's never one time you can just say, okay, this is the way things going. These are, this is the way things are going today. And that's what's going to happen tomorrow. It's a constant observation situation. Uh, even the very weather that day can impact the intake on those animals. If, here's a good example. So I tell the story a lot where we went out to move cattle one evening and the cattle were moved within the same paddock. So same grasses, everything. And they all decided to get real vocal because something was different. I didn't know what, what it was that day, but I looked at the weather. Uh, the forecast had indicated there was a chance of hail and the plants actually responded very quickly to that barometric change. And the sugars and the bricks and the forages just tanked, right? They just went down to the cellar. It was single digits where normally we were upper teens that day you know, previously. And the animals were telling me, right? And their intakes weren't the same that night. They didn't like what was what was being offered for them. And the next day that weather system had passed, the bricks were right back up to where they were before and, and intakes uh, leveled out. So, you know, that constant ability and willingness to observe as management is just really key. If you're not willing to observe, you can't really expect to be able to have good information and good indicators and how to respond appropriately to achieve what you're after. Right. Okay. So Tyler, I know you've already had to make some uh, management decisions. So describe some of the stuff you've started doing, what's triggering you to make those decisions, and then share with us a little bit about everything you learned from 2021 and, uh, you know, what worked for you and what didn't and what you plan to do differently if this year looks similar to 2021. Yeah. So thus far, um, we have two rented pastures that, um, basically I, before I even brought the animals, I decided to keep some of them back Mm. and, and figured, okay, we'll wait and see if we get some rain and then I'll bring another, you know, six or eight head you know i don't have a big operation here um but you know so i instead of taking 12 cow calf pairs or something i brought like eight and to another one i brought 10 and that's helped a little bit um 
And at home, I've gone from, you know, I've been moving daily, like basically once a day. And I now, now in the drought, I prefer to tighten that up and move twice a day, or even uh, I have a, I have a farmhand um, this summer. So we're able to go out and co-manage that and we'll set up the moves for the day and tag team, you know, who's doing that so that we can get other work done too. And so we've been doing some four times, you know, four times a day move and you really can start ratcheting, you know, dialing in the exact grazing effect when you start moving two to four plus times a day. And so we're at a point where there is enough forage that I can, I can take a first bite here. Um, but I don't want to take a second bite. Like the key is I never want to hurt something unintentionally just because I didn't put enough effort into grazing, uh, the man, you know, the timing, the moves and, um, and, and, and therefore, yeah, like we're gonna, we're gonna feed hay before we just go back and just start, um, grazing 20, 30, 40 acres, just because it's the last thing that's green. Right. That is just, you're going to crush those 48, those 30, 40 acres in no time anyways. So what is the point? Yep. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's a silly decision. And, and, and yet I get it, you know, when it's the last thing that's green and, you know, it makes, it doesn't make sense, but I mean, I get why, why people do it. And so, um, just to put that out there, that the last thing I'm going to do, if I'm going to hurt something, it's because I need a place to feed hay. And I recognize that like, you know, okay, this three acre paddock, I'm going to feed, you know, hay here for however long I need to. Um, and, and then I'm going to give this extra rest when the rains do return, you know, it becomes a temporary sacrifice paddock and it may be one that we go to over and over, or it may not, it may be one that I kind of want to renovate, um, and, and maybe no till some, some, some new species into, um, but so, yeah, so we've tightened that up and my, my goal is to graze the seed heads off while still leaving a solar panel behind. That's about, you know, four plus inches high. Um, and right now, um, my open ground pastures are high ground, you know, they tend to be, you know, well-drained. They were formerly tillable acres. Um, and so they're, they're at a point right now where they're about to probably start going backwards on dry matter, like what's standing out there, you know, it's, it hasn't been doing anything really for about, uh, probably 10 days except for advancing in maturity. And so with my core herd here at home, which is my grass fat, you know, finishing beef herd, who's being harvested, you know, in twos and fours through the summer, um, I want, I, I also need to make sure that I'm getting uh, a finishing diet into them. And so I am, am, I'm, quality also is important, not just kind of keeping bellies full. Um, but so I'm trying to use those open pastures first because they tend to go backwards first. They're, they're in the sun and they just get beat by the, the high temps and the, and the direct sun and the, the cool season grasses just don't last. So I'm trying to utilize what I can there. Um, before it's just, you know, uh, maintenance diet at best or not enough where I can actually graze it without hurting the stand, um, for when the rains return. And then I have a lot of silvo pasture on our farm. As I mentioned, I'm the silvo pasture, you know, project lead. And so we have a number, we've got about 30 acres of oak savanna that's, um, you know, it's been in transition and produces quite a bit of forage for me. And, you know, where the, this year I'm probably at, I'm probably running 
of normal forage production there versus 20 in the open fields. It's, and we, that was the same thing in, in 21, it was, you know, where it was maybe 10% in the open fields, it was probably 60 in the silvo pasture. And this year I'm like 2090. And so um, not only is the tonnage great there, but it, the quality is going to hold because it's in the shade and it's not advancing as quickly. Those plants don't get stressed. This is the, this is the main reason that silvo pasture is, is something of interest for, for livestock operators is that it, it does create a, a, a microclimate that will um, enable those plants to remain in a, you know, more optimum temperature zone as well as the livestock when they're grazing it. So I'm saving that, I'm saving that silvo pasture ground for, I'm presuming I'm going to hit, you know, a week or two weeks of 95 plus degree heat index in late June, July. Um, whenever it comes, I've got weeks worth of stockpiled forage there that I'm going to utilize. Um, probably in the next two weeks, simply because of my slaughter schedule, um, I'm going to pull out the handful of older cull cows, potential cull cows that I've got. They're fall calvers. Um, that are with that market group, and I'll put them on some low ground pasture that I usually can't access. That is more reeds, canary grass stuff. I don't consider finishing quality, but will do great to hold that group. So I'll make an extra group that I have to manage, but um, I'll be putting the right forage into the right class of animal and utilizing the forage more efficiently that way. And like yeah, like Doug said, like the low ground is actually more productive in a drought than it is in a wet year, and you can access it. Um, it's the same with hay, you know, if you've got low ground, if you're, if you're making hay, like low ground hay really shines in a drought, you know, you can, instead of getting maybe one cutting, you can get two cuttings and not only is it two cuttings, but it's actually both of them are better quality. Um, so there's, there's some interesting, like divert, like landscape diversity between high ground and low ground that I think, uh, people should think about when it comes to grazing and haying on their operations and timing when they're utilizing those spaces, like kind of like what Doug was saying, um, you know, it, it may not look like much in a wet year, but in a dry year, it's, it's life-saving. Um, so that's a lot of what we're doing is just kind of trying to save the forage that um, is semi-shaded and in a, you know, good climate, you know, semi-shaded environment for when it's hot. And then if I get to where I'm out of feed, I'm going to call my, I have three classes, I have three groups, an A group, a B group, and a C group. And I'll call the C group probably third week of July and start, if I need to, I will start feeding hay until rain comes back. Um, also by that point, we will have destocked by uh, our butcher. You know, the animals are too, they're, they're going to, they're, they're, they're on the slaughter schedule. So every month we, we are destocking about six head per month from here through September. So that helps, mm -hmm. um, reduce the mouths to feed. And, and then with, from there, it's beyond that, it's about figuring out what's going on with the, the, the rented ground kind of complicates things because I can manage the herd at home pretty easy, but it does get a little complicated when, if the pastures completely turn off on the rented ground, well, okay, am I bringing them home? Uh, that's a lot of extra miles that I kind of wasn't grazing the first part of the year. And so th thus far in 21, we just fed hay. So we were able to get to the end of July, about the first week of August, pretty much full grazing, um, even though it was rough. And, you know, I, I wasn't exactly sure what I was supposed to graze when or how to graze it even. Like I had enough theory, but I hadn't been through a drought like that, really. A spring drought where we didn't get any rain in the very early spring. That was the first year I've had that. And um, so I fed hay for three weeks in August. The rains came back 
in mid-August. And um, we produced enough forage with the August and, and September rains. It was like reverse. It was like we produced a first crop. I mean, it was just unbelievable how much forage we produced in September and October um, because we didn't hurt the pastures. We did everything we could to not hurt our productive pastures that could perform when the rains came back and we were able to graze out to Christmas and I saved probably 90 days and I didn't call a single animal. So I'm hoping that, you know, the rains do come back at least some point this summer while the growing season still can give us a chance to do something right. Everything's about staying alive so that if the rains come back, you can do something with it before frost. Right. Yep. Well, it sounds like you've got a solid plan that you're, you're working through and yeah, you're looking pretty far ahead to pull all those pieces together and, you know, make it work. So Angie or Derek, do you have any thoughts to add with the drought triggers and uh, decision-making tools? I would add last year we started, uh, we were quite dry last year. And um, in August, I wasn't getting the days of recovery that I wanted on my pastures when I was trying to plan out where I would be. Um, So in early August, we started supplementing well, it was about a half a bale a day for 120 head, which ended up being about 15% of the dry matter intake. And that built an extra almost three weeks into our grazing round. And um, it really, really helped the pastures and we were able to hit our recovery goals. And uh, I guess this year also, um, since we usually buy about half of our hay, we've been calling some cows and we did. We called about 10 cows. And with Current call prices. This is the year to go through that herd, and uh, if anybody looks at you funny, you know, it might be time for them to go. And um, I'm just doing some quick math, and calling those ten larger cows. We're looking at a savings of 57 tons of feed. That's feed that go to other cows that are maybe fit our system better. Right. Yep. Angie, any thoughts? Yeah, I just like to add a couple of things. All great. Um... All great ideas here that are being used, but um, a couple more that I thought of too um, that we've done is, you know, it's just a- about looking ahead um, and knowing if you have a 30 day rotation, is it coming back like it needs to be before you're going to get back there and then making a plan. Um, and another thing I think that we've done is um, looking at young stock. If you raise young stock, if you have a dairy, um if the young stock is there, you know, eating pastures as well, if you can find another pasture for them to go to. Um, we've used like wildlife refuges in our area um, since we are organic, um, but people who aren't obviously would have more options just looking to get those other animals off of the main pastures so that you have those um, for the dairy animals. Um, and then two, um, looking to um, get hay from places you wouldn't. So the low ground you guys were talking about, uh, maybe ditches, places that traditionally aren't um, used. And I did just see um, an email came in my box the other day about a lot of these wildlife areas too, that they're opening those up this year already for hay. So finding other resources and things um, just to make sure you can do the supplementation and things. I think the most important part is just, yeah, being ahead of the plan, not waiting until you run out of grass and then trying to figure out what to do, but, um, always looking ahead. So. Right. Yeah. If I always like to say you need to graze like you're 
never going to get another drop of rain. So graze as if you're going to enter a drought at any time. And I think that really it's something you have to be conscious of sooner or later in agriculture, you're going to be faced with a situation like this. And so always being prepared and going into it with that mindset of being adaptive and, and ready to pivot quickly um, is something that we need to keep in the back of our minds. So we've discussed a lot, you know, triggers and some decisions that we're making. Let's dive a little deeper into the resource side of it. Talk a little bit more about why, why it's so important that we increase our recovery times, you know, what's actually happening below the, the soil in the soil there with uh, lack of moisture and Doug, I'm going to come to you. Um, so with lack of moisture, what are we seeing happening with nutrient cycling, um, the biology of the soil temperatures, all that stuff, um, and break it down for us so that we can kind of visualize it and then understand how our management is impacting that as we're making drought, drought decisions. Yeah. Well, first of all, a lot of times when people are managing ground, you know, we have to understand that the resource doesn't care what our objectives are necessarily, if it's feeding cattle or, or earning an income. Um, you know, that's why we focus so much on the six rules, six principles of, of soil health at SFA as much as we do, because they really address the resource, right? Um, mm -hmm. Our context can't make the lack of rain less important, right? And so, like I talked a little bit earlier about the cover that we left last fall because of the current trend and conditions where we haven't had the moisture. I mean, if you compare like the year of 2019, excessive rainfall, um, you know, there's a lot of forgiveness with excessive rainfall when it comes to the plant's ability to recover, if not over impacted by a livestock in a grazing situation. So when you don't have that and you have, like we talked a little bit about the differences in soil types too, today um you know angie talked about the differences between her farm and tyler's farm and and there's you know there's less forgiveness in sand typically when you're comparing a lack of water and so that that resource we have to identify what's going on with that specific area that we're looking to manage right and so all these different things like the armor of the soil the diversity and all these different things that we concentrate so much effort on uh that really either shines or it doesn't shine like so it's it's the indication of the success or, or lack thereof of our management when we get to these more trying times like drought so it, it really is you have to have a multiple of perspectives to do a really good job of managing any good resource because yes you have to balance what you're looking to get from income for it you have to keep your operation viable but if you make excuses and you make uh you know you qualify bad management it's going to be enhanced in the future with the way the resource responds so if i feel like i have to feed my animals today even though i know it's grazing down too for too far in that pasture um we've got a number of clients that have called and say listen my, my neighbors are calling me because you know <laughs> they've they've noticed that we have grass and they don't have grass i mean there's one in my mind i can think of off the top of my head uh one operation they had to get the animals out of the feedlot because they were having animal health problems right whether it was uh just a resilience in the herd and they had pneumonia or they have bad ventilation in confinement whatever it was so they put animals on pasture too early and it impacted those grasses before they should have been and that reduced their growing for that season by 75 percent or more and so you know we could say well listen i have to feed my animals today they're getting sick i got to get them out on pasture that's my only the only way i have to to deal with that issue but yeah there's compounding and cascading effects to that decision making so now they're stuck with a a very low producing 
pasture and now we don't have the moisture to help us out, right? We don't have the forgiveness of the rain like I just described in 2019. So any mistakes we make, I guess is my point, is they will further be enhanced and exaggerated by a lack of rainfall or, you know, challenging conditions that way. So I always share with folks that, you know, we always were, the epitome of the farmer is to always be optimistic about the next year. Um, otherwise we wouldn't be farmers probably, right? But we go into the season hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. So the idea is, is that, boy, I'm hoping for a good season. This is what I think that looks like. But if it doesn't show, if if that's what not does not develop, then what's going to be my my response to that. And and the idea in a drought is you respond before you react, right? So you you want to plan for, okay, I'm going to do this because of this. I'm not going to come out and say, well, the grass is all gone. Uh, my cows are all thin because they've been putting on too many miles to get their calories. And, um, you know, I, maybe my response might've been, well, they, they have to eat something. And so I throw open all the gates on my farm. And this is what I've had folks you know, tell me in drought conditions. Uh, well, I had to feed them something. And so as opposed to regulating where they were and you know for what reasons at the right time, they just said, well, they had to eat. So I threw all the you know paddock gates open and I let them go find their food. And that can, in my opinion, in some situations have pushed them back two or three years from where they could have been with sound management by protecting the resource. So you can't, you know, I just, you and I were talking a little earlier today and I gave you the analogy. My, my son was riding his horse around the yard. He's got a, a new horse that he's kind of training. And I mean, just think of the horse as the resource, right? I mean, that's his means of transportation. You, you wouldn't think about beating the horse up against the tree and then asking it to take you for a ride later, right? I mean, you've got this resource that you're asking to team with. You're looking to enhance its ability to express good productive forage for your herds. Why would you beat it up constantly and then say, why can't you provide for me? So if we're not thinking of it from a resource perspective, we're shortchanging our ability to really profit and uh, and improve the ecology for a number of reasons that we talk about in SFA a lot, whether it be water quality, air quality, nutrient density in the food that we're producing from the livestock that we're grazing. Um, you know, that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But we have to have a multiple of perspectives and we have to be able to understand that if we're going to make sacrifices with what we're dealing with with the resource that day, that we're going to have to account for the cost that that's going to bring in the future. So one of the reasons with the resource not to overgraze and take it down so far is the leaves are the solar panel of the plant. And what we're really witnessing is the energy cycle at work. So our root system also stores energy reserves. And if we compromise a root system through overgrazing and taking too many leaves off, we can't recover the energy and the plant is just stunted essentially. Right, Doug? I mean, that's kind of what we're we're looking at when we're grazing is how do we set this plant up for the best scenario for recovery and our management determines that? Yep. So that is the general school of thought. And I, I agree with you. So typically we want to provide enough residual so we have some surface area on those leaves to capture sunlight. That's not to say that we want to impact the resource the same every time either. And so think of it like a pulsing effect. Um, if we graze the same plant at the same conditions, the same time every year, um, you know, we won't promote a vibrant ecosystem. We have to pulse the impact on the resource. That means we're starting in a different area of our farm each year when possible. No, right? So again, we're in a trend with, with drier conditions in the spring. We just talked about going to low ground as opposed to high ground, but that's that's helping us vary that impact. So 
you know, even if I'm going to an area that I may have gone to last year, I'm going to vary the degree of impact that I have on that resource. And sometimes it surprises me too. I mean, sometimes there's something in particular that we're looking to potentially suppress. I mean, we've got an area that I have in mind when I, I'm talking right now that we grazed really hard last year because we wanted to knock down some trees that were growing up against a fence line. So it wasn't that we were necessarily trying to uh, suppress the grasses that were there, but that just happened naturally. We just planned not to have to, not to come back to that area for quite some time in the future. But the grasses surprised us, even though we took them down further, they responded very, very positively when they did have the rain that did come. So, um, yes, we do want to leave solar panels, generally speaking. And this is, the statement is often made with grazers because the tendency of grazing is to graze down too far oftentimes and come back to a paddock too soon. Does that mean everybody does that? No, but that is the general tendency. We don't understand the impact that we can have by, by altering our rest periods and extending them out. Uh, there's got to be more than just looking at keeping things highly vegetative, what we refer to as kind of the New Zealand model. You know, different climate, different rainfall, obviously. I mean, we <laughs> rainfall is not usually an issue in most of New Zealand. So that's a different situation, different context that we're dealing with here. But yes, um, anytime we're, we're taking half of the total biomass on top, we have the potential of suppressing root function, which we just have to take into account with what we plan to provide for a rest and recovery period. So it's, I uh, can't believe how much time we've already used up and there's a lot to discuss with drought, um, but I want to be careful to kind of keep us on schedule here and respect everybody's time. So in the last few minutes that we have, I just want to kind of open it up for you all to share resources that have been helpful to you um, either currently or in the past. Any other thoughts? I'll just say that two years ago, I just happened to be in the FSA office um, doing some other paperwork and um, they were already aware, you know, that things were looking pretty dry. This was like mid-June. And so they they had asked me if I had um, certified my 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 pasture and hay acres, um, which I had never done before. Didn't know that was something I could or should do. Um, you know, different. That's different than like the um, ARC payment certifications. Um, anyways, so I think for a lot of our members, they probably are are they probably are unaware of that, uh, especially if they're new, like I like I am, and. Um, so by certifying those acres, I was able to uh, take advantage of the various pots of money that then became available once a countywide um, drought disaster was declared. And so um, that was a big help for me being able to um, weather the exorbitant hay costs, you know, because we did a great job getting through the growing season, but then winters, you know, we buy all, we buy pretty much all of our feed. And so uh, the drought still hurts um, after <laughs> the drought still hurts. In fact, in fact, in many cases, it probably hurts more come that following winter. And so that that really helped us out. And um, I think that people should be aware of that. And then I would just say as a last point that when the rain, if you if you do find yourself, um, you know, feeding some hay at some point this summer, don't be too and then the rains come back and things green up don't be too quick to jump on that first bit of green probably feed an extra two weeks because it's yep. going to get you an extra six weeks of grazing if you just mm -hmm. wait a little bit yep. it's really hard but um you got to do it 
I would agree with that, Tyler. I've done that before, and it's you kind of chomping on the bit to get get them back to grass. But every day you can wait and feed some hay, you're saving yourselves or you're giving yourself a lot of grass in the back end. And it's hard in the summertime to feed hay, but it can it'll give you so much tremendous benefit. So Tyler, uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on the FSA? Yeah, fill us in on some more details where our members can go to, you know, sign up for that. And is there any deadlines on that and anything else they should know? Yeah, they should just call their county. You know, every county's got a FSA office. So they should call their FSA office and ask about certifying their their hay and pasture acres. And they'll want to know. It's very, it's very simple. Um, you just, you know, print out on a map and it shows how many acres and you say, yep, this is hay. It's this kind of, you know, maybe it's a cool season mix or it's warm season grass or it's alfalfa hay or it's grass hay or something like that. That's about the information they want. That allowed me to, they'll, they'll then, you know, retroactively come back and ask like how many cow calf pairs you had, you know, basically looking at stalker, like stalker animal units. And they'll use that to figure out some payments. Then the, in 21, at least the state of Minnesota had some funding for, um, they were like transportation related, you know, uh, funds for if you were trucking hay or if you were trucking water, or if you were trucking livestock to pastures that you would not normally have done as a result of the drought, they were providing funds to help compensate for some of those increased costs. So we were able to take advantage of those as well. And all of those, I believe, yeah, you kind of need to have your acres certified to like take part. Okay. And we will find out the exact deadline on that and we'll drop it down the show notes for y'all. So Angie or Derek, any other resources or thoughts on this drought conversation before we wrap up? I would say if you're, um, this has been on my mind a lot lately. If you are, you do normally purchase hay like Tyler does. Now is a good time to start. There's people with leftover hay from last year. Um, the price is pretty good right now, and um, it could easily double by you know next January. Um, it's not always convenient to buy it now because there's lots of other spring costs that happen, but it's uh, not a bad idea to start laying in a supply. Yeah, having it even just like uh, kind of like a little bit of a padding of a, a hay resource available just to get you through. You know, I was looking at local ads for hay on. Facebook marketplace or Craigslist or whatever. And late winter can be a great time to pick up hay for a, for a good deal. And if you have a place to store it where it's covered and keep it out of the weather, it's having that pile of hay as an insurance can be a really good feeling, especially as you're going into this time of year with the, the dry weather we've been having. So uh, yeah, it's a good point. Angie. Only thing is, you know, we've talked a lot about grass and grazing and of course, um, but some operations who have both, like I touched on a little bit, um, if you do are growing some grains, whether it be corn or small grains, um, just an option, you know, to see it, what it, what it's doing. If there's no rain coming and it's not looking very good, you can always take that as a forage. Um and if you have neighbors too that maybe are growing grains like that, they might be interested in selling some of theirs for forage if you need um, in additional and it's close by. Because um, I know the big challenge with buying hay a lot of times is the trucking cost nowadays. So finding anything local is um, going to be a good opportunity too. Right. And sometimes it's cheaper to put wheels under those animals and migrate them than it is to truck hay too. So it's always another consideration for folks if they can um they can move animals put wheels under them and migrate them somewhere else to grass um it's always a good option 
it typically would be cheaper than trucking in a lot of hay. So uh, two other resources to plug real quick are the Cropland Grazing Exchange through the Department of Agriculture and also the Midwest Grazing Exchange. Those and many other resources will be in the show notes. The, all these resources are valuable resources, but they're not uh, they're not immediate answers or they're not you know quick to respond. It's still it's still a process. You still have to start the process early. So if there is concern and you're looking to consider using these resources, plan ahead and make those connections in advance. Thanks so much for joining us today on Dirt Rich. We hope this conversation has been helpful. And as always, feel free to reach out to us. One of the ways you can do that is through our on-farm consultation program. Simply go to sfa-mn.org under the Farmer Support tab, and you can fill out an application to request uh, one of us to take a walk on your property and take a look at your situation if you're having a difficult time with drought or an impending drought. Uh, Another set of eyes can be just the thing that you need. Thank you for being with us today. We'll talk to you again in another episode. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting us by making a donation or becoming a member at sfa-mn.org. Thanks for listening.